And so we repeat, if you are ever approached to perform even a seemingly harmless service having to do with your military duties, or know of another serviceman being involved in such an approach, report it at once to your CO or nearest security officer so that our counterintelligence forces may cope with this threat. Welcome to Covert Contact from Blogs of War, where each week your host John Little takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. Welcome to Covert Contact, episode 99. I'm your host, John Little. Joining me today is William Tucker, those of you who've listened to uh, the podcast for a while will recognize that name. I think we recorded something like 20 different episodes on counterintelligence over the years. Um, I went back and looked through the archives today. The first one was in 2014, which is kind of shocking. But uh, William, we're about to make uh, we're about to make a hundred. Oh, that's fantastic news, and the feedback has been great. So I'm, I'm hoping that people stick with us. You know. Through another hundred, <laughs> uh, yeah, another hundred. I'm not thinking about that yet, um, but um, it, it might it might happen. Uh, this is a lot easier uh, this setup that I have now. So, um, in fact, you and I have been talking about you know uh, now that this thing is officially relaunched, uh, trying to to get uh, on a regular cadence and uh, Thursday evenings talk about uh, the latest developments in counterintelligence and. I really missed our chats. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I know uh, I know you know that um, these conversations were sort of the listener favorites in a lot of cases. So uh, there is no shortage of stuff for us to talk about, right? No, not at all. Not with uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray mentioning that the FBI is opening a new Chinese espionage case every ten hours on average. So no, I don't think we'll run out of content. <laughs> Yeah, ten hours, and um, that's that's not enough. You know, we've always talked about CI issues broadly, but uh, we just keep coming back to China uh, over and over and over again. Um, and there's good reason for that, um, uh, given uh, given the penetration that they have, given the footprint that they have um, in in this country. Um, you know, not only sort of the geopolitical uh, interests that they have, but um, you know, the economic side of it drives so much of their activity. Oh, sure. Military modernization takes money, and the only way to make that money is build your economy. Um, and China has really exploited that well. I mean, they've certainly had some help, not just with the uh, their trade relationships with the U.S. and Europe, but also with the war on terror really kept the U.S. bogged down for, well, we're still, <laughs> still forces employed in, uh, in some of the same theaters. So they've had they've had a lot of leeway to uh, to pursue their their agenda and and collect wherever they can just to save money on R and D. So 
that's where it's really driven this, uh, is this uh, intellectual property theft that China has engaged in. Um, and I'll quote uh, Director Ray again. He called it one of the largest uh, transfers of human knowledge in, in history. And that's, and to, and to put that in perspective, that's largely over the past 30 years, mainly last 20 years. But yeah, we, I, I, I like to put it around the 1990 uh, end of the Cold War era. So much of it. I mean, there's a lot of uh, own goals here on our side, you know, just uh, complacency. Um, y- you can even trace a lot of this back to like our failure to, and you know, on, on our educational programs and STEM education and the fact that, uh, that we've had to import so many, um, you know, we have so many foreign workers in a lot of sensitive positions, uh, which, you know, obviously they're not you know, all up to no good, but it increases the likelihood and and also the potential for uh, for governments like China to to get resources in place. And you know, they've made they've made good use of that. Oh, certainly. You know, and they uh, there's been a a very effective disinformation campaign that's kind of gone along with that. Prior to reporting, I, I mentioned that you know throughout the '90s and the early 2000s, there was this this belief that the Chinese uh, intelligence collection was largely a cottage industry. In other words, these were individuals um, engaging in this IP theft of their uh, of their own accord, and which which we know that now that's not correct. It was a concerted effort overall. Of course, we did have traditional cases that would pop up here and there. Some were handled better than others, certainly. But it really, it really just gave the illusion that this was not a uh, a national effort, and that really harmed us because our our response to it was not um, was kind of piecemeal. It was just that basic education: hey, if you see somebody doing something, they're not supposed to. If they're accessing information, they're not supposed to. If they're trying to walk out of the building with it, things of that nature, which is helpful. But when you can actually say, hey, this is this government is doing this and it is so widespread, I, I think it really brings it home. And I, one of the things that I like to point out is, uh, some, is the Sinovel case. And if you want to Google that, it is S-I-N-O-V-E-L. So Sinovel is a wind turbine manufacturer in China, and they were um, working with a, an American company, and basically, this U.S. company wrote software for them. Uh, China, uh, or Sinovel, obviously got tired of paying for it and figured, well, why not just steal it? Um, and which they did. And now the, the company, Sinovel, was uh, successfully prosecuted for this in U.S. courts. But what it cost uh, the U.S. company called American Semiconductor, uh, it cost them $800 million out the door. Um, it forced them to lay off over 600 of their 900 employees, and it cost their shareholders uh, upwards of a billion dollars. That is a single case. And to think that there's 2,500 cases per year should really bring it home how bad this is. You know, that just means those are the ones we know about, right? Like, exactly. it's a drop in the bucket uh, when you when you think about what is actually happening. And, you know, one of the things I always bring up when we talk about this topic and I talk about this topic to anyone else is just, how much of this um, sits in a gray area as well. And, it, you know, it can look like academic exchange, for example, uh, you know, but the knowledge transfer is still happening, right? Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, you can, once, the, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you're not putting it back in. <laughs> and that's kind of what you, what you see with, these, uh, with some of these tech transfers or these uh, 
IP transfers. You know, these these companies, um, they decided to do business with China, often set, setting up in China. Um, and they didn't always take proper precaution, and it certainly cost them dearly. Um, and it, it, sometimes it's not even it's not even a deliberate espionage. It's just simple access. Right. And you guys agree to it, and, you know, here we are. Um, even if you try to mitigate that, you know, on the U.S. side, it's still... It still causes problems. Um, we see that with uh, some of the t- Chinese telecoms. Uh, some of the cases where they've been indicted uh, were actually kind of the, the cross-border issue. I think the T-Mobile case is a good one um, because they had spent a lot of money developing something, a, a robot called Tappy. What they what T-Mobile was trying to do is find out how many taps you know it would, uh, it would take before a phone fails. Uh, so they developed this robot to kind of shorten that and... Uh, they had the, the Chinese telecom they were working with basically directed one of their engineers that on the U.S. US uh, segment of that company to engage in a bit of espionage. And uh, when they got their foot in the door that way, then they started sending over engineers from China itself. And at one point, they actually stole they stole the robot <laughs> itself. <laughs> and the guy took it back to his hotel room. Um, it, it, it is an absolutely... It's a bit absurd because T-Mobile really did go to great lengths to protect their IP. And it was just kind of dumb luck on China's part that this guy was able to get this robot out of there. Um, but again, you can Google that and you can read the, uh, the case on that. And it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it just, you know, so much of this could be fixed by um, private enterprise and uh, academia taking um, basic precautions, uh, taking uh, insider threat risk seriously. Um, You know, you talk about espionage and people start thinking about, you know, people stealing documents and brush passes at the park and you know, you know, sliding under the laser beams, Mission Impossible style. And, you know, it, a lot of this happens almost, almost in the open and it, it looks like regular business activity in many cases. It certainly does. It's just trying to good at exploiting uh, those loopholes. And one of the things that I've noticed is as the U S is recognized this for what it is, and it's taken an actual national, um, whole of, nation effort to, to counter this um china has certainly adapted as, as you would expect them to i mean they're not um, they're not novices at this so one of the things they did is they they said well if they're going to crack down on visa fraud if they're going to crack down on export compliance laws things of that nature then we're just going to start recruiting americans and they did this directly through uh, what is collectively known as the Thousand Talents Program. Although that's kind of a catch-all, Thousand Talents is actually a single program. The it, there's literally thousands of these programs within China that have separate funding from local, provincial, and uh, uh, national government. So when I when I use that, I'm, I'm kind of using that as a as collectively. But yeah, so they uh, they started paying U.S. professors, other U.S. retirees coming out of certain tech industries, pharmaceutical industries. They um, come to China. We'll pay you a bunch of money. You'll be uh, a consultant. You know, you'll be a consultant, and that's the key word right there. Yep. And, and they, they do, and they were paying quite a bit. I know we had that Harvard professor. Uh, you you mentioned that uh, before we started recording. That guy was and that individual. Yeah, he certainly was. Um, he lied about it. He hid it well, and it was more than just uh, China using him for information. They used 
the conduit to uh, and to bring other, say, uh, Chinese professors or Chinese grad students to work on uh, U.S. government-funded grants and these college uh, these institutions. So it's it's a yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, money's always been a component of espionage, and that's what kind of played into this. Um, I mean, ideology is still the overwhelming motivational factor when it comes to espionage, but money certainly plays a big role. It, again, it's something to, it's something to look for within your, uh, in your whatever agency uh, company that you work for. It's something to be cognizant of. When you see the financial details of that Harvard case, you, well, you know, I guess Harvard, they're used to seeing large sums of money. So maybe, maybe they didn't think twice about it, but you know, trying to hide that much money, uh, that always, that always ends badly. I was calling that the thousand red flags program. Yeah. I, uh, I had a joke when, uh, when we first became aware of the thousand talents program and, uh, there's actually a website as it happens sometimes whenever you translate a website into multiple languages, not every page gets uh, translated. And with that one in particular, there was, uh, there was one page and, they, it's almost like they ran it through a translation program instead of having a human translate it because it came out, it's just a single, uh, single sentence as an explanation of what the program is and they called it the great exploit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I guess uh, yeah. <laughs> the translation that was, worked. That was the Chinese government website. So uh, <laughs> that was, I said, well, that's a thing of beauty right there. <laughs> Screenshot that one. You see poor trade craft every now and again, but something like that is really, yeah, it's, it's fun. Uh, I have a feeling in the next uh, three months in particular, we might have some other kinds of cases to to discuss. Uh, we're heading into, you know, October. Uh, October surprise territory. Hack and leak is such a big thing. And, you know, just, I don't know. I think uh, security issues might be top of mind before, uh, before we get through all of this. Yeah, I don't doubt that one bit. Um, <laughs> you know, there's always there's always foreign attempts to influence U.S. elections, and not just presidential elections, even uh, even congressional elections, sometimes even local elections. So it's always been there. Um, but when you have something that really comes to the fore like this, it's uh, it kind of brings a new level of consciousness of what uh, adversaries and even allies alike try to do. It's never boring, um, and. Uh... We never seem to learn our lessons, so it's always going to uh, going to repeat. Um, you know, that's that's one thing I want to just keep revisiting with you, and and also it's sort of a key objective with with this podcast is to um, you know talk about playing defense uh, and being a little bit smarter on the defensive side. Everybody likes to to focus on offense, and uh, you know, especially like in cyber, right? Offensive cyber is just everybody's. Can't wait to get their hands on that. But, um, you know, meanwhile, we're leaving uh, doors unlocked and it's, uh, it's pretty it's easy pickings for people. And we just keep shooting ourselves in the, in the foot um, and, and not doing the basics. No, basics go a long way. Just sometimes the simple security procedures that you put in place have a have an outsized impact. And, of course, even in the, in the private sector, it gets difficult trying to convince uh, your executives and your bean counters that, it's a worthwhile endeavor because they don't see, they say, here we have this department, but it doesn't make us any money. Well, the department exists to prevent you from losing money. Right. Um, and it, that's, and that's sometimes that's a hard sell. Uh, I will say the environment overall has gotten better. Uh, places that I've consulted 
certainly far more open to it than they have been in the past. Sometimes they would uh, hire a consultant, come in for an hour to yak and then just go on ignoring them. And, um, I actually had one government agency that I spoke with, I want to say 2012, um, saying, hey, you need an insider threat program. And their response was, we have security, we already have, uh, you know, these security measures that will prevent that. <laughs> right. uh, of course, it, and it, it, and by itself, it, it, it didn't. And I'm I'm pleased that I want to say it was last year that they said, yes, we're going to roll out an insider threat program. So it took us seven years to realize it and the a lot of incidents later <laughs> before before they realize that there's a problem. Uh, you know, it's um, especially in the past few years, dealing with insider threats has been something that has occupied too much of, of my time. And um, that job has never done um, all the, the traps and internal security in the world won't prevent it from happening on some level. Um, it definitely, it's... You know, you definitely need to take it seriously. You need to have those things. You need to catch the people who are, uh, aren't as savvy and who make mistakes. And, and uh, you know, again, it comes back to doing the basics. But uh, a lot of this is a very human problem, and it needs that human layer to, to be attuned to it, be aware of it, and catch it. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a recent uh, recent espionage case with a Ph.D. student out of uh, Singapore who uh, – who was recruited by China, um, and it was. I found it interesting because he used LinkedIn. So obviously, people try to look at this as something new and savvy. And <laughs> so, you know, he used he used LinkedIn as a platform to initiate contact. But when you look at everything else this guy did, it was very traditional trade care, trade craft. Oh yeah. Um, you know, there's. But he did say um, in court documents that uh, LinkedIn allowed him to make connections you know, on a much grander scale. And there was a lot of people that uh, bought into it. He was also pretty smart because he set up a, uh, a front company using a, uh, the name of an actual real U.S.-based company. And people were sending him their resume, thinking they're sending it someplace else. And again, you know, here's, here's my life story. Here's where I might be exploitable. I haven't been employed in the last six months. I might need money. Um, I've, I've worked at these think tanks. Oh, okay. I can see you have a certain ideological proclivity because U.S. think tanks are not at all independent. Um, and so maybe we can we can exploit that. So yeah, you know, there's uh, it's it was it's an interesting case because of how open the guy was after he was arrested. And not that it's going to help him. He's probably going to get his uh, his ten years in prison. But I don't know if you know Scott Turbin, but uh, uh, you may have run across him on Twitter or something. But we're going to actually discuss some of those uh, some of those issues. We've been screaming at people about, uh, especially folks who have clearances and things like that, about LinkedIn for like well over a decade. Um, I personally had to shut mine down ten years ago, or even I don't even know when it was. It was a, it was a long time ago. It was early on in the early on in uh, uh, when they started up. And, you know, I had so many uh, Iranian engineers who wanted to, you know, befriend be me on LinkedIn. And I just shut it down. But uh, I'm, I'm still surprised at how many people are and how open they are on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to say something. When I, was, when I had my account, it was because I had an employer requirement for it uh, <laughs> where I was working at the time. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that didn't last long because I... I I forgot about it for a while. I shut it down. But one of the things that, uh, you know, I noticed about it is you really, like any social media, you don't always know who you're talking to. There's um, I, I, there's a lot of stuff that's just put out there. 
Yep. And it was just, you know, I know I understand why the company wants this, but it's more of a risk when you look at them trying to poach your people or um, say, oh, this person works on this, and that's kind of the the information I'm after. So I'm going to heavily recruit that. Yeah, it's 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 a heavy risk. Yeah, and uh, like I said, there are a lot of folks who who should know better, but uh, are out there anyway. Um, and that- yeah, and I was I. I did use it um, briefly, and I did get a few uh, consulting uh, gigs out of it. And then I said, you know, it's not even worth it because for me, I consult. If somebody wants to find me, they'll find me. I, I don't ever <laughs> I don't go out there and do that. Yeah. So, um, so I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about that angle. So I was just, just like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving this job anyway. I'm going to shut this down because it's, it's simply not worth it. Yeah, I don't make a lot of new friends. It's just uh, too risky. <laughs> Much less uh, <laughs> off, off of the internet, um, uh, you know, as you can imagine with blogs of war and all that, and at times having like a, a really high profile or whatever that creates a only problems. Um, so yeah, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad, uh, we're able to do this and I'm looking forward to, you know, doing it on a regular basis so that, um, you know, I think it's a good exercise for me. Um, I've always enjoyed talking to you. You know, we think uh, our minds are wired the same way, and it's good to get into this um, this space on a regular basis and sort of like uh, keep those, um, you know, that that sort of thought process sharp um, because it's it's like a muscle, right? Like you can you can get complacent and you can stop thinking uh, as conspiratorially and and. Uh, <laughs> As, as you and I do, like, um, you know, in a way that sort of helps you stay attuned to this stuff. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because there are a lot of, you know, former um, intelligence officers, counterintelligence officers. And uh, I remember years ago when I first got on Twitter and somebody had mentioned that, God, there sure are a lot of former, you know, intel officers out there. And I said, I remember thinking about that. I said, you know, there's there's something that I learned from uh, a guy named Olson who was a CIA counterintelligence uh, director. I don't know how long ago, but he mentioned, uh, you know, you don't stay too long um, because you're supposed to have that healthy bit of paranoia, but there's a point where it becomes unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you got to keep it in check, right? Like there's a, yeah. Um, there's a, it's always, always walking. Are you talking about James Olson, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Jim Olson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I recommend, um, I recommend his book on, uh, I forget, I wish I, I should know the title. It's, it's basically on the ethics of, of the intelligence business and, and, uh, and, um, espionage. And it's probably the best book on the subject. But yeah, no, it's good stuff. But yeah, you're right. You know, you gotta sort of flex your, brain so that you can think like the enemy and sort of red team uh everything but at the same time um you can never you can never go off the deep end and uh conspiracy theory land and seeing threats around every corner it's a it's a tough balance and a lot of people you i watch people sort of fall off that cliff on a regular basis yeah yeah, absolutely. Well, we uh, we will do this again next Thursday. I, I have a list of things that uh, we still need to talk about. We will never run out of out of threats to talk about or problems or cases. Um, <laughs> and you know, even if we don't have an active case to discuss, there's always all these issues around security um, that you know we just can't talk about enough. And uh, there's still so much so much more work to be done. So we'll talk to you again next Thursday.
I look forward to it, and thanks for having me again. You have been listening to Covert Contact from Blogs of War. This podcast is produced, written, and hosted by John Little. Follow John on Twitter at Blogs of War and join the conversation with hashtag CCBOW. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.